listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, um, if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 14? Matthew 14, it's been a little while since I've said that. Turn to Matthew. Uh, We took a break in the month of July from our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're jumping back in. So if you are a guest with us, it's a great time uh, to be with us. We started this series back in December of last year, um, and we're calling it All Authority. And you'll see why here in a bit. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 14. Uh, and, and before we do that, I just want to warn you that this is one of those passages that you don't expect to be in the Bible. All right? You don't ex- this, this passage, we're going to read in a bit, it reads far more like a, a Netflix original series than it does a, a Bible story. Okay? Anybody watch VeggieTales growing up? I did not expect the response that I, both services, everyone's like, yes, VeggieTales, you know? Um, maybe you, you, your kids watch VeggieTales. Um, there is no VeggieTales episode on this passage, all right? And you'll see why here in a bit. If you're not there yet in your Bible, Matthew 14, um, if you would turn there, I'd love for you to get your eyes on the word, either on your phone, there's some Bibles in front of you, Matthew chapter 14. Um, before we jump into this passage, I just want to kind of catch us up a little bit on what we've covered so far. So the author of this book was a guy named, let's go, all right, we're doing this. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and in chapter 9, we learn um, that he was a Jewish man, okay? So this is how, in chapter 9, we read about how he came to become a follower of Jesus, and so he writes his gospel to a specifically Jewish audience, and that's what makes Matthew different than the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, is because Matthew's writing as a Jew to a specifically Jewish audience, and this is why he uses more Old Testament references than any of the other gospels as well, because these were, he was writing to people who were familiar with the Old Testament, right? It makes sense. Um, and so this entire book, the reason Matthew writes it is to show that Jesus is the Messiah, to show that he is the anticipated messianic king who was promised to God's people in the Old Testament. It's the whole reason he writes this book. 28 chapters to make the same point, Jesus is king. And he is the one with all authority. And so as a result, since that's who he is, the king with all authority, then he is the one who deserves all of our allegiance and all of our worship. And so this is the whole book. Chapter one to four, Matthew shows us this is who Jesus is. And he starts with a genealogy, right? The book starts this way. Matthew one, verse one says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so if you were starting out, I'm gonna read my Bible, maybe for the first time or the first time in a while, and you turn to this passage and you read Matthew 1, the first 10 verses, you go, this is boring. Why? It's a list of names. I don't really recognize any of them, but if, to Matthew's original audience, they would have been hanging on every word. They would read Matthew 1, verse 1, and they go, that means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. That, that through you, the entire nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. In Genesis 12, he makes that promise. That means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, who says that from you, one will come and he will, his throne will be established and it will rule forever. I mean, there's gonna king that's gonna come from David and, and they're putting all this together. They would have been hanging on every word and Matthew is saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the promised messianic king. In chapter five to seven, there's a section of scripture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus describes for us a vision for what life in his kingdom looks like. 
And it's different than, than anything we would expect. It's different than anything Matthew's original audience would have expected, right? So, so who, who's the blessed ones in our kingdom, in our culture, in our life, right? It's the powerful. Blessed are the important. Blessed are the, you know, the, the popular. And, and Jesus says things like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and the merciful. He reframes for us what it looks like to follow Jesus, to live in his kingdom. In chapter eight and nine, Matthew gives us a series of miracles from Jesus, miracles that Jesus does that demonstrate for us the power of the kingdom of God. And what we see in these miracles is that Jesus has power over the natural and the supernatural, right? So he has power to do things like heal sickness and disease, but he also has power to bring people back from the dead. And he has power to look at a storm and say, stop, and it listens. But he also has power to cast out demons. Again, Matthew's point is that Jesus is the one with all authority, and so he and he alone deserves our allegiance and our worship. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is his concluding argument. This is what Jesus says. He says, you build your life either on the rock or on the sand. And this is Jesus' way of saying to every single one of us, this is who I am, I'm the king, the one with all authority, and every one of you must respond. And there's only two ways to respond to me. You build your life on the rock or you build your life on the sand. I want you to see this in Matthew 7. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blow and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blow and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. It's the way Jesus ends the sermon. They don't teach you that in seminary. It's not a good way to end it, but that's the way Lord Jesus does it. So maybe we should try it. But what's the difference, he says, between building on the rock and building on the sand? The difference, he says, it's not those who've heard the word and those who haven't. The difference is hearing and doing. The difference is how you respond. The difference in building your house on the rock and on the sand is what you do with what you've heard. It's responding to the news that Jesus is the king, that he is the one with all authority, and the way we respond is by submitting our lives to his rule and reign. That's what it means to build on the rock. It's in your life. You do what he says for you to do, and you go where he says for you to go. And again, King Jesus requires a response, and there are only two ways to respond. You follow him with your life or you don't. You live under his rule and reign or you live under yours. And the reason why I did all that was not just to catch you up with what we've covered in Matthew so far. It's because in Matthew 14, what we're gonna see is the, the way not to respond to Jesus. This is the primary example in this book of how we do not respond to Jesus. So let me read this for us and then we'll spend just a few minutes talking about it here before we celebrate with these brothers and sisters in baptism. Matthew 14 says, I'm gonna read the whole passage, one and 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead and that is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. 
so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and he had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother and his disciples came, took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. See what I mean? Netflix original series over here. Um, And this is a great passage for Baptism Sunday. It just really is. You know, you guys are gonna remember this forever. Uh, So when I read this, passage, there's a question that pops into my mind that I think we need to answer, and it's, it's really simple. It's, why is this in the Bible? Like, why does Matthew put this story in his gospel? If his point is to say that Jesus is the king, he's the one with all authority, and as a result, we need to respond to him with our worship and our allegiance, he can do that without giving us this bit of history, right? Um, why does he put it in the Bible? Well, if you remember back the past few weeks and Bill talking about the word, in 2 Timothy 3, it says that all scripture... Every word in this book is breathed out by God. Other translations say inspired by God. And it's profitable for what? For teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it says that the man or woman of God may be complete or equipped for every good work. And that means that this passage in Matthew exists not to just give us a history lesson about how a great man died. Right? This passage is in the Bible and it's, and it's here to equip you and me to be what God has called us to be. It's part of our equipping to do what God has called us to do. So I want us to look back at it, thinking through that lens. What in this passage can reframe or re, uh, reframe for me, reshape or reframe for me um, what it looks like to be faithful to follow after Jesus, right? Uh, and the passage breaks down into two sections. The first section is verse one and two. The second section is verses three to 12. And the reason why that's the dividing line is because Uh, three to 12 is basically Matthew's commentary on what's happening in one and two, right? So uh, if this were a TV show, if it were VeggieTales, then one and two would be present time. And then you get the little wavy lines and the accordion sound, you know what I mean? And then we're going back in time. That's what verses three to 12 are. They're a flashback. So verse one says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. All right, so think about what we're hearing here. Matthew's saying that Jesus has been declaring the power of the kingdom through his teaching. He's been demonstrating the power of the kingdom through his miracles. And so Jesus' ministry is beginning to create a buzz in Galilee, right? If it happened today, we would say this man's going viral, all right? So his notoriety is building so much so, it says at that time, Herod the Tetrarch began to hear about it. So we, we need to know this, who is, who is Herod the Tetrarch? We have to understand this. And this, it can be a little confusing because we've heard the name Herod in the Gospel of Matthew before. Back in chapter two, there's a Herod, and these wise men come, and they say, hey, where's the one that's been born king of the Jews? And he said, I I am the king of the Jews. And he begins to kind of scramble a little bit because he feels like maybe his kingdom's gonna be taken from him, and so what does he do? He has all the little boys two and under killed to try to protect his own kingdom, right? And the translation there is, that Herod was not a good guy. All right, that's all you need to know there. Um, he's actually a very bad guy. That's Herod the Great, all right? And these two Herods aren't the same, chapter two, chapter 14. Chapter 14, Herod, the Tetrarch, is actually Herod the Great's son, okay? And, and what we'll see is the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, but we're told that this is Herod the Tetrarch, and that word Tetrarch means ruler over a fourth. And in the Roman government, a Tetrarch was like a governor, right? Some kind of a ruler over a, a province or an area. And so what happened is when Herod the Great died, 
his empire was split and, and given, a fourth of it was given to his sons. And Herod the Tetrarch was made ruler over the portion of that area where most of Jesus's ministry happened, right? Galilee and a couple other places. So Matthew says that Herod hears about the fame of Jesus, which means he's hearing about a guy who can give sight to the blind in the first century, who can heal the paralytic, who can cast out demons, who can raise the dead, who can calm the storm. He's hearing about this guy, his notoriety is spreading. Herod hears about the fame of Jesus and look, look at how he responds, verse two. And he says to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead and that is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. So his initial response to Jesus is, this guy must be the guy that I had killed. And that doesn't make any sense, does it? If we're honest, like, especially the way we just read that John went out, would that memory not be seared in your minds forever? And so he's hearing about this guy who's able to do all these miraculous things, and Herod's first thought is, that must have been the guy that we killed that one time at my birthday party, right? Would that even be a category in your mind? No. And so what Matthew wants us to see is that Herod was a man who was haunted by two things. He was haunted by his guilty conscience and, and by a fear of losing his position of power and importance. That's what's going on here. And this is why Matthew gives us this flashback, verses three to 12, because what happens is, is Matthew's given us a little backstory between John and, and Herod's relationship. So verse three says, for Herod seized John, bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Okay, so this isn't the first time we find out that John has been in prison. We actually find out John the Baptist is arrested back in chapter four. So Jesus comes out of the wilderness being tempted by the devil and he's about to begin his public ministry. Chapter four, verse 12 says that Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been arrested and so he retreats into Galilee. So we've known for 10 chapters that John the Baptist has been in prison. Um, but here in chapter 14, we learn why. And Matthew says that Herod is the one who puts John in prison. And the reason why, he says, he does it for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And you might think, well, that's interesting. Herod must have really liked his brother's wife. And if you thought that, you'd be right. The problem is he liked her a little bit too much, okay? Because what happens is basically uh, Herod goes to Rome to visit his brother Philip. He sees Herodias and he thinks to himself, I think I want her for myself. I don't want you to have her anymore. And so he divorces his current wife, who happened to be the daughter of a neighboring king. Um, and, and we don't have time for this, but just know it doesn't go well for him that he just kind of kicks out this princess and the neighboring king doesn't like it very much. It does not go well for Herod, but he divorces his current wife. Herodias divorces Philip so she can marry her brother-in-law. All right, so the story's going sideways in a hurry. And before you start feeling bad for Phil here, old Philip, like, man, what about Phil? I bet he was a good guy. A girl just left him. Before you feel bad for him, you need to know this. The reason Herodias is named that is because she's named after her grandfather, Herod the Great. And so you're like, wait a minute. Wheels are spinning. So her grandfather was Herod the Great. I thought you said Herod the Tetrarch and, Her and Philip were sons of Herod the Great. Yes, okay? So Phil had married his niece, Herodias, and now Herod had stolen his sister-in-law slash niece from his brother, and he married her. It's a messed up story. Before the beheading, all right? And then, that's why there's no veggie tales on this one, right? But when, when it says in verse three that 
Herod had thrown John in prison for the sake of his brother's wife, what Matthew's original audience would have known is it, they would have felt the kind of the, the scandal there. Because it used to be his brother Philip's wife, but now it was his. And we learn why in verse four, right? Because John had been saying to him, to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John gets thrown in prison because he's calling out the one man with the most power in the region whose dad was Herod the Great, all right? Um, And if you've been with us in this series, you may recognize that this type of boldness from John is consistent with what we've seen from him. In chapter three, John's in the desert, eating locusts and honey, wearing camel's hair, crying out in the wilderness, right? He's a forerunner to Jesus. He says what? Easy sermon. Make my job a lot easier if I just preach this sermon over and over. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I wouldn't have to work very hard at all to write that one. Um, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This word repent, it means to turn or to change. And John is saying in the wilderness of Judea to anyone who will listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's near, and you need to line your life up with what God says. That's what he's saying over and over and over again. And you wouldn't think that would be a great ministry growth strategy. Repent, 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 right out in the wilderness. It actually worked for John, right? Hundreds of thousands of people came out in the wilderness to John to hear him preach. And the Bible says they were baptized, which means they listened which means they did repent, which means they heard the word of God and they aligned their lives up in obedience to what God says. And so what we learn in chapter 14 in the flashback is that John's sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's actually personalized for King Herod. Verse four says, because he had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John calls out Herod and he says, repent, and and not just in a general way, a specific way, and I'm talking about your marriage. And the tense in the original word is in the imperfect when he says he had been saying to him, which it doesn't say John said to him. It wasn't like John just mustered up the courage. I know I gotta tell him, but I really don't want to because what's gonna happen to me? He doesn't just do it one time. It's he had been saying, which means he continually said to him. Every time he got around him, what about that marriage? When are you gonna repent? What about that? You know, every single time, John calls Herod out, right? And what we learn in the next few verses is that their relationship was actually pretty interesting. It wasn't just this, hey, repent, and and Herod didn't want to. Look at verse five. And though Herod wanted to put him, John, to death, he feared the people, that's the Jewish people, because they held him, that's John the Baptist, to be a prophet. So um, what's happening here is, is Matthew says Herod wants to kill John because he's publicly shaming him, essentially. And now every time Herod's out in public, people are whispering, like, oh, did you hear what John said? John told him, you know? And and Herod doesn't like that, so he wants to kill John, but he's afraid, because he's afraid of what the Jewish people will say, what they're gonna think about it. And we actually get more context when Mark tells this story. Same stories in Mark, but he kind of gives us more detail. Let's be on the screen, Mark 6. It says, John had been saying to Herod, same language, had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. So now the new wife's involved, which is definitely not good for Herod. But she could not. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And so when he heard him, this is an interesting detail. When Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. So Mark says that it wasn't just Herod that wanted to silence John, it was Herodias too, right? She didn't just want him silenced and put in prison, she wanted him dead because she's new to town. She's from Rome. She comes into town and, and she didn't like the side eyes that she's getting from people. Oh, that's Herodias, right? She didn't like, oh, she's, you know, she's the new one. Like she didn't like that stuff. So she wanted John 
dead, but it says Herod wouldn't do it because he was afraid of what the Jewish people would do and what it would mean for his place of power and authority, right? So he's in charge under Rome. He only has power because Rome gives it to him. So what if, what if there's a riot? What if there's stories coming out where Rome gets back to Rome where, oh, Herod can't keep his people in check, and so all this stuff, he might be removed from power. So he's just stuck, right? And verse 20 gives us an interesting detail, Mark 6. It says, not only did Herod fear the people, he feared John because, he says, he was righteous and holy. So even though Herod didn't like that John was calling him out for his sin, and make no mistake, he did not like that. No king likes this. He did not like that, but the Bible's telling us that there was something about John that he was drawn to. Something about John he was drawn to. This is what it means when Mark says that Herod is perplexed. A word means, literally, it means to stand at a crossroads. He's stuck, doesn't know what to do. Wants to go this way, but, but knows it's gonna cost him and he can't figure it out. It's like a, if you've ever seen a kid, like a little kid run up on a diving board. You know what I mean? They're just all bold and full of energy and they run out on the diving board and they just get stuck. They just get perplexed. Like they, because of their fear, they can't move. They don't know what to do. They wanted to do it, but now they can't, right? And Mark says that despite Herod being stuck in his fear, when he hears John preach, he heard him gladly. Other translations of that would say he, he enjoyed it. So he loved to hear John preach, except for when he started talking about his sin. That sound familiar? The, and so he, what we need to see about Herod is that he was drawn to truth, drawn to it. He heard him gladly, but he had no intention of obeying it. Drawn to truth, but no intention of obeying it. And so he lived his life stuck in his fear, haunted by his past guilt and, and desperate to cling to his position of power and importance. Look at verse six. We'll speed up here. Verse six, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter and the king was sorry, but because of, his, because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and he had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. The imagery in this scene is supposed to be disturbing. It is. Um, what's happened here is Herodias, because of her grudge against John, she sends her daughter in to dance in front of this group of men. She uses her daughter to manipulate her husband. And what's clear in the context is that this isn't a tap dance, all right? Um, I don't need to deep dive that. It wasn't a ballet is what's happening here. Uh, and remember, this is his niece slash daughter-in-law. <laughs> I always do it. I always make a joke in a serious moment. And... and and, and we don't know how old she was, um, but the word that's used to refer to her called little girl or girl in verse 11 is used in other places in the Bible and it refers to a teenager. Most scholars think she was 16, she could be older, she could be younger, but again, what's clear here is that she's, her, this teenage girl is used by her mom to manipulate her stepfather into giving her what she wants. It's supposed to be disturbing and it works. And so she asked for John the Baptist to be beheaded. In verse nine, it says, and the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So he was sorry, which means he didn't want to kill John. 
Right? He didn't like being caught on his sin, but he didn't want him dead because he liked to listen to him preach. But it says because of his oaths and his guests, he goes through with it. And just so in case you're wondering, this is far more about his guests than his oaths. It's far more about John's concern with how he was perceived by other people. Mark tells us the men who were there, the men who were invited to this party, were the nobles, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Which, by the way, Herod threw for himself, right? Like, don't do that. Don't throw yourself a birthday party. Um, but what Herod did is, is he said, he, he, he's important. I'm important. So let me invite all these important people to come and celebrate me so that I can feel like I matter. And Herod had gathered all these important people around him, and now he's stuck. He's sorry about having to kill John, but he could not go back on his word, again, because he's afraid of what people would think of it. And so he has John uh, killed. And ultimately, Herod makes his decision out of a fear of losing his own kingdom. What will it cost me? He makes, he's, he's driven and motivated by fear of what other people think and what it's gonna cost instead of being motivated um, by a fear of God and allowing the kingdom of God to rule and reign in his life. He's trying desperately to hold on to his own kingdom. Again, he does a thing he never wanted to do. This is the fourth time we hear about Herod being afraid. All through the passage, Herod's afraid. He's afraid of his wife. He's afraid of the Jewish people. He's afraid of John. He's afraid of the people at the party. He's afraid of losing his kingdom. And the contrast here between Herod and John is significant. Because Herod is the tetrarch. He's the one who is supposed to be confident, the, the powerful ruler, the one who has the authority, right? He's supposed to be that guy, and yet he's enslaved to his fear. And then you got John, who's in prison, completely powerless, but because he fears God and not man, he's presented as the one who's free in this story. Because when you trust God with your life and you obey him, and when you submit yourself to the rule and reign of God's kingdom, instead of constantly trying to build yours, then and only then are you free to step out from underneath the weight of having to hold it all together. Trying to manage and control every little situation and make sure everything goes the way you want. And this person has to be there and they gotta think that they need to see me doing this and, and that life that so many of us live on. And it's exhausting. Make sure everything goes the way you want. Make sure no one finds out that one thing about you that will make it all come crashing down. Matthew 14 gives us a picture of how not to respond to Jesus. Herod, he liked to hear the word. He loved truth. Liked to hear the word, but he had no intention of obeying it. He's sorry for his sin, but his sorrow is just regret about what it's gonna cost him. It's not repentance. He was sorry, but it was just regret. It wasn't repentance. And what's interesting about this passage is it's almost the complete opposite of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about what life in the kingdom looks like. I think this is one of the reasons why Matthew puts it here. It, it shows us the opposite of what it looks like to live underneath, gladly underneath God's rule and reign and to try to build our own kingdom. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hits some high points, right? He talks about anger. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit or you shouldn't commit murder, but I say, what about the anger in your heart? And you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say, what about the lust in your heart? It teaches about loving our enemies. It teaches about uh, divorce and marriage. And in this passage, in Matthew 14, there is anger and there is lust and there is divorce and there is adultery and there are oaths and there is revenge and there's hatred and there's a disregard from the law and there is ultimately murder. And church, this is what sin does. It's what happened in Matthew 14. It's what will happen in our lives as well. When we do not trust God, it always leads to brokenness 
and devastation in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. The problem is most of us church people, we're just a lot better at hiding it. When we don't submit to God, it will always lead to brokenness and devastation in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And, and you could easily dismiss me right now. You could say, this guy does not know what he's talking about. I am nothing like Herod and good. You shouldn't be, right? But let me ask you this. Do you ever feel haunted by the guilt of the things you've done in the past? Ever just pop in, you're just going about your day and that thing comes up. And then you hear the story of accusation that says, how could you? and you call yourself a Christian, you're this bad of a husband and you're gonna go to that Bible study or whatever it is, that soundtrack that plays in your mind. You ever feel haunted by the, the, the guilt of the things you've done in the past or the things you're doing now? You ever motivated to not do something or to do something out of fear of what people are gonna think about you? Out of fear of what it's gonna cost? You ever afraid of losing whatever that thing is in your life that makes you feel valuable and makes you feel most important? How about this? Do you ever get worried when you get an email or text because no one calls anymore on the phone, but you get an email or a text that says, hey, can we talk? And then the first thing that pops your mind goes, oh no, what'd I do? I'm in trouble, right? That is evidence that we are living our lives on this exhausting treadmill that says, I have to do this and I have to be this and I have to build this thing up. And, and if someone finds out those things, then it's all gonna come crashing down. You get one call from your boss and you go, oh no, he wants to talk. I must be in trouble. If so, if you say yes to any of those things, I think we, are, we might be more like Herod than we think. And, and there's some irony here in verse nine because right before Herod gives the order to have John killed, um, Matthew says, and the king was sorry. The king was sorry. And this is the first time that Matthew calls him king. It's the only time he calls him king because he's not really a king. He's a tetrarch. Rome has a king. It's the emperor, right? Herod is a governor. He wants to be king desperately because then people would think he's great, but he's not king. And, and the irony here is the one time Matthew calls Herod king is when he's acting most un unlike a king should act. Right? A king should be in control, have power and authority, confidence in their ability to rule. They, they definitely shouldn't be so consumed with their lust and their own ego that they make a promise that forces them to do, do something that they're gonna regret for the rest of their lives. The moment when Herod is acting most unkinglike is when Matthew calls him king and it's supposed to draw our attention to this contrast, right? There's a contrast here between Herod and John. There's also a contrast here between Herod and Jesus. Herod, the man who is desperate to be king but never will, and Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you really consider this passage, it's actually not about Herod or John. It's about Jesus. How's it start? At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of who? Jesus. And it ends with Jesus. Look at verse 12. And his disciples came and they took the body and they buried it. That's John's body. I love, I didn't have time for this in the first service because it's gonna be tight with the baptisms, but I don't care your second service, right? It says, he took the body and buried it. He didn't bury John. John's not there. He took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus, because where else do you go? And now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Verses 12 and 13 show us that when Jesus hears about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist was his cousin if you didn't know, 
he, he needed to get alone and grieve. And, 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 and think about how impactful and significant that is for us in our own life. This is our king, Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the unrivaled, unimpeachable, glorious Lord of heaven and earth, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who right now, the Bible says, is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father in complete and sovereign control of every square inch of creation. And yet here in verse 13, we see the one with all authority cares for us. And even more than that, just like John, Jesus would be senselessly put to death, right? Because of an oath, because of a promise, this egomaniac king makes to a teenage girl, John ends up losing, a life, losing his life. The guy, Jesus, by the way, says about John the Baptist, there's no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. This is how the greatest man who ever walked the planet, short of Jesus, goes out, senselessly. Right? And just like Jesus, John would, or just like John, Jesus would be put to death. And his disciples would come and they would take his body and they would put it in a tomb. And yet, Jesus would be raised from the dead. And ultimately, our king, the one with all power and authority, he gives his life to rescue us from being trapped in our sin and forever. He gives his life, right? He forever defeats death and hell through a perfect life in an empty tomb to rescue us from living this life exhausted, desperate to try to be impressive to the people around us who, if we're honest, we don't even like most of them. But we want them to like us. He gives his life to rescue us out from underneath the weight of our past guilt, our sin, our shame. He defeats it forever through his perfect life in his empty tomb. And Matthew 14 shows us, church, that it is not enough just to hear it It's not enough to even enjoy hearing it. We must respond and we submit the entirety of our lives to his rule and reign, every bit of it. Not the things that are just easy to obey in, all of them. And church, this is why we plant churches. This is why we baptize because baptism, in just a moment, when these folks get in the water, it is a declaration that not only is Jesus the king of the world, he's king of my life. And church planning is a declaration that we don't spend our time, energy, and resources building our own little kingdoms so we can stand back and say, look how great we are. We spend our time, energy, and resources partnering with God because he's building his kingdom. Let me just ask you a couple questions and I'll be done. I already went too long. Where are you building your life on the sand instead of the rock? What I mean by that, what are the things in your life that you are unwilling to submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus. The areas of your life where you go, that's mine. Where are you hearing the word, but you are unwilling to do it? Church, Jesus has invited you and me to come to him. Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That means that we yoke ourselves, connect our lives to his, and we say, I go where you go. I do what you do. Jesus has invited us to come to him, but the invitation from Jesus is to surrender to the king. All of your life, not part of it, to position your life under his rule and reign, which means all of your life is now his. And I know at times, maybe even most of the time, Giving over those parts of our lives, it doesn't feel like freedom. 
Surrendering our rule and reign to him does not feel like freedom, but I can promise you, surrendering your life to, the king, to king Jesus is the only way to get the life that you want. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get to respond and celebrate at the baptism of these brothers and sisters. Father, we're thankful. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Even in a passage like this, God, you equip us. It is profitable to teach us, to train us, to correct us. Help us, God, to hear your word, to respond in repentance and faith, to submit our lives to your lordship, God, because you are the king. You are the one with all authority, and you are the one who deserve our worship and our allegiance. Help us, God. For the folks in the room who are struggling, who are hanging on to the parts of their lives that are difficult to surrender to because they're either too painful or because they're too prideful or whatever, God, would you help them by the power of your Holy Spirit to trust you, that you are a good Father, that you know what we need. We're thankful for Christ. Help us to respond this morning in song and in celebrating. Brothers and sisters, get in the water saying, you're not just the king of the world, you're king of mine. Help us, God, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, let's respond together.